0: Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, would you turn to Proverbs 22, verse 14? We've got some ushers coming down the aisles. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up. They'll get a Bible in your hands. You can use it today. And again, take it home if you need it. Glad that you are here worshiping with us and those joining us online. You heard me talk a little bit about Kindred. That's pretty exciting what they're doing uh, this morning. It's a great day uh, to worship the Lord. Um, This summer, we have been in a study called Catch 22, and it's based on Proverbs 22. And if you've been with us, or if you followed with us online or caught up, you know we've talked about reputation and humility and and wickedness and parenting and debt and generosity and quarreling and wisdom and faithfulness. And last week, we talked about our inner sloth, the laziness. And today's proverb, I'm gonna read it, um, and then we'll unpack it and explain it a little bit. It's an interesting verse, I'm not gonna lie. The message this morning will feel weighty. And it's my prayer that God will use his word to awaken us. But this is expository preaching, which means you preach what's in the word. Proverbs 22:14 says this, the mouth of an adulterous woman is a deep pit, a man who is under the Lord's wrath falls into it. I wanna talk about three things based on this verse and the first one I wanna talk about is the lure and it's the first part of verse 14 and it says this, the mouth of an adulterous woman or the seductive words of an adulterous and in parentheses you could put strange woman and the first phrase of this Proverbs we're looking at this morning reminds me of other Proverbs and it's, it's thick throughout the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 5.3 says this, for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Her words make us feel good. She, she tells us what we wanna hear. She affirms and compliments us. And we're lured when we're not on guard. And it reminds me that the lust of the eyes and the craving of the flesh, when it's it's kept unchecked, leave us vulnerable and to be ensnared and drawn into this this ruin of destruction. And comparing a believer and an unbeliever side by side, there are distinct differences. When a non-believer falls into sin, how could any of us ever be surprised? Because they have not yet been rescued. They have never been redeemed. They've never experienced what we call regeneration or, or, or being made new. And for the unbeliever, sin is their love language. It makes sense to the unbeliever who has no moral compass. They're living in their natural habitat, so to speak, and it's what they know. Acts 16:31 says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There are many verses and passages of scripture that set apart an unbeliever from a believer. Listen, the only person who is saved is someone who sees their need to be rescued. That's the only person who who is saved. Many people believe that they are saved, but they have never seen their need to be rescued. Salvation is being rescued, saved from the eternal wrath of God, redeemed from the penalty of sin that is otherwise paid on our own. Of course an unbeliever will be lured. The pleasure of sin for an unbeliever is this this quick fix. It's a quick fix to an eternal problem. And no one here scratches their head of the behavior of one who rejects God and, and one who decides to live for the flesh. We don't go, oh my goodness, what are they doing? The lure of sin wins every time for someone who rejects God. 1 John two sixteen says, for, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but it comes from the world. So, uh, so allow me um, and I think this will be helpful this morning, allow me to use the adulterous woman as a, as a representation of the world and the lure of sin itself in more of a generic way. Not meant to ignore the obvious in this verse, but, uh, because the face value of this verse um, should not be ignored. Maybe just not a topic uh, for today with so many children in the room. So she will represent sin in general for both men and women. So we're going to level the playing field here this morning. The truth in this verse points to a much bigger systemic issue. The adulterous woman highlights the reality of human sin and the truth that sin, it invades every aspect of our human life and society. Remember how 1 John two sixteen starts. For everything in the world, to understand grace, you have to understand sin. To understand mercy, you have to understand sin. To understand forgiveness, you have to understand sin. To understand salvation, you have to understand sin. To understand Jesus, you have to understand sin. Three things in that verse, lust of the flesh. We need to know that appetites of the body are not themselves sinful. That is why the word flesh is used here, meaning the old nature of man, uh, or his capacity to do which is displeasing to God. It's the flesh. It's the sin nature. The lust of the eyes, the eyes have been called the gateway to the soul. Hence the point of entry for many temptations. The pride of life, the central lust of ego itself is indicated by this, the utterly selfish instinct in all human life. So quite possibly, back to the unbeliever for a second, quite possibly unknown to the unbeliever the lustful appetites of the flesh, that craving of the flesh, the eyes that refuse to bounce from temptation, as maybe you've been taught to do, and the untamed ego. For the unbeliever, all of these become the motivating framework for life. And while the unbeliever thinks the adulterous woman will provide the fulfillment to his emptiness, and that she will provide value to his struggle of feeling unwanted. And surely she will give purpose to his floundering. It always, always falls short. So much so that the time between a quick fix of sin narrows. And we're familiar with this, even believers. We have a sin, brings pleasure, Six months later, we do it again. Four months later, we do it again. Three months later, we do it again. Two months later, we do it again. One month later, two weeks, one week, one day. And the distance between begins to narrow because we realize more and more it does not work. What about the believer? Though many of us have been rescued from the penalty of death, Here's the truth, the gravitational pull of the flesh is real. While the believer's position changes from death to life, from lost to chosen, the flesh remains. And at the core we become a new creation, radically changed in Christ. We have been made righteous, but the free will of the flesh is no joke. Uh, The difference is that in our new position we can now see the light in Christ. In the light, we realize that that the satisfaction or the purpose are no longer found in the flesh. We come to grips with the truth that sin no longer has power over us. We grow in our knowledge and understanding that the Holy Spirit that now indwells us is there to guide us, to, to, to teach us, to remind us, to counsel us, to convict us, and to help us in those times. Friends, I am, I don't even know a word, but I am far, far, far from perfect. My free will allows my flesh to be fully engaged at times. But I'm quickly reminded of who I am and whose I am because God's grace and God's mercy and his forgiveness is not to be taken lightly. It allows me, it allows us to trek through another day on this earth without carrying around the weight of sin. Because Jesus took care of that on the cross. So first there's this lure. The second is the trap. Because the next little phrase says, in a deep pit. The deep pit mentioned here can be thought of as a trap. A trap that is meant to catch the lured and lead him to death. It's a narrow well, one that is next impossible to get out of. This isn't meant to be anxiety-producing, but imagine if you fell into a hole that's just big enough for you to fit into, and you could think of it of a couple different ways, and and maybe it's 12 feet deep, and and your, your arms are down when you fall in, so you can't move. You can't get your arms up. You can't get out, or maybe your arms are up when you fall in, but you can't move your arms. You can't get them down. Imagine that tight, tight space, that trap. It's a deep well suggesting that someone or something has control over you. It's the picture of one who is caught in a pattern of going nowhere. It reminds me of Samson in the Bible. He's famous strong man in Scripture. He had incredible accomplishments. If you know anything about Samson, you know that he killed a lion with his bare hands, and he slaughtered 30 Philistines at one time, and And he went and he took these heavy gates from his city and he carried them to Gaza and he crushed them on thousands of people and thousands of people died. He says, he he was Mark Wahlberg of his day. Many men, no doubt, had a Samson man crush during that day. And there was no doubt many men who were killed because their wives said, well, why can't you kill a lion with your bare hands? Like Samson did, Right? And us as, as men, we can't handle that. And we're like, oh, yeah, watch this. Here, honey, hold my diet Mountain Dew. <laughs> Samson was a Nazirite, if you know anything about him, which meant he was pledged to never shave or drink. He ended up marrying a Philistine girl, which brought him closer in contact with the Philistines, which ended up being costly. There was a harlot named Delilah who weaseled from him, the secret of his incredible strength. There had to be, there had to be an answer because he, he has this incredible strength, which, which was his vow to never shave. That was the answer. To never shave, that's where he got his strength. So while he was sleeping, she clipped his hair. Some of you are thinning on top. I, I'm starting to get this spot right up here. And I only notice that at certain times... Um, But that could be what's happening. Make sure your wife always falls asleep first, right? It doesn't take much. Just a snip here and a snip there. But Samson, his strength was found in the fact that he never cut his hair. Delilah then turned Samson over to the Philistine friends, friends who gouged out his eyes and made him a public exhibit. Samson had a rough day for sure. Samson at the end of his career, so imagine the strong man of his day, all of the feats, everything that he's accomplished at the end of his career, He's had his eyes gouged out, his hair's been cut, his strength is gone. He could be found grinding grain in a circle. Grinding, grinding, grinding grain in a circle going nowhere. Around and around. Maybe that sounds familiar to you, because it's an image of the Israelites in the wilderness and their disobedience. One of the many times they refused to follow God, they found themselves stuck in this circular pattern out in the wilderness, going nowhere. And the judgment was them going in this this big circle until their disobedience turned to obedience. Sometimes maybe in life you feel like I'm going nowhere and if you just pause long enough and you start to take a closer look, you discovered that you just keep going round and round and round. It's kind of like um, if you've ever been on a cruise, like when you, if you've been on a cruise that's left Florida and gone to the Bahamas, you know that that isn't a, a very long distance, right? And, and I've taken, we've had a couple of those short ones, and I've, we, one time it was just a quick trip. The next time it was a full day and a full night. We're like, well, how in the world does it take us that long to get to the Bahamas? It's not very far. And then you know what I mean? You look at that map and you realize, really what we're doing is we're out in the middle of the ocean just going in a circle so you can have a longer time at sea. That's kind of what it reminds me of. Not only is the sin luring, but the power of sin can also entrap and cause one to get this claustrophobic feeling in a hurry, like being inside of the MRI machine. My, my best friend that we went to visit in Oregon, he has a shoulder problem and uh, the, he went in to have an MRI done and he went into the MRI and lasted about 30 seconds and said, nope, take me out. It's that feeling of, 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 being, of being narrow, just big enough for you to fit in all alone. That's what sin does. It's a lonely place. Most people don't just walk up to someone and say, hey, do you have a minute? I would like to tell you about the pit that I'm in because of the sin in my life. It's lonely. It's usually just between me and the sin of my choice. Sin for the unbeliever, because they still live in darkness, is more noticeable because they don't hide it as much. They think that it's acceptable and normal. And it is in darkness. And honestly, darkness is normal for the unbeliever. But even they experience the deep pit from which they are forced to grapple with the promised gratification and the emptiness of sin because people tell them over and over again, you're going to have gratification. thinking to themselves, wait a minute. I thought a believer, friends, learns how to fight hard to keep their sin anonymous and undetected. To go unnoticed. And so the pit can feel very small, very lonely, it can feel like there is no escape. We can easily surmise this one sin, must be the thorn in my flesh. I guess I will always struggle with this. Often before we give our lives to Christ, we learn that sin brings pleasure. Even if it's temporary, like I said it a minute ago. So so part of the growth for us as a believer, if you've given your life to Christ, part of the growth is realizing that while sin may bring pleasure, It's only fleshly pleasure. It's a pleasure that falls way short of what God intended. It's an imitation of pleasure. Because pleasure, please hear this, pleasure in its completeness affects our body, our soul, and our spirit. We have tasted satisfaction when every fiber of our created being is content. First there's the lure and then there's the trap and then there's the reality. Second part of verse 14, a man who is under the Lord's wrath falls into it. What does that mean? Other translations, and maybe you have one of these, say that those who remain in the guilt of their sin And that alone tells us that this is in reference to unbelievers. Believers no longer live under the weight and the guilt of their sin. It has been taken care of, forgiven, removed, separated as far as the east is from the west. But for the unbeliever, one who remains under the wrath of God, one who remains guilty, falls into this trap. And the pit reveals to us a pit with one who has fallen into gross immorality. Praise God, there's hope. (laughs) John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn us, the world, but to save us through him. God loves his creation unconditionally. He sent his only son to die on the cross for every sin so that anyone who believes in him doesn't have to perish, doesn't have to stay in this pit, so that anyone who believes in him does not have to experience the wrath of God. If you believe in him, you do not have to experience the wrath of God. For those who have chosen to turn away from God and who have refused the free gift of salvation, the sin becomes the cause for punishment because they haven't dealt with it. It's telling the story of a person who chooses what they want instead of what God wants for them. And here's the reality, and this is hard to swallow. Let me say the previous line first, because I want you to understand the line I wanna say. It's telling a story of a person who chooses what they want instead of what God wants for them, okay? And God lets them have it. It's a person who does not want God. It's a person who is not interested in being rescued from their sin. And God says, "There you go. A person who is not in Christ is one who insists on having their own way. It reminds me of Romans 1, 18 through 24, and I just want to read this. It says this, it echoes it. The, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, nobody will be able to say at any time, I didn't know. And it goes on, it says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And then verse 24, listen to this, it echoes exactly what I just said. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Here's a few takeaways from Romans one because that is a deep, heavy passage. Here's a few takeaways. And it goes with the verse we're looking at today. God hates sin. No person can read Romans one and walk away wondering what God thinks about sin. He hates sin. He hates that some of his creation have opted for a fantasy of their own imagination instead of truth. Here's another takeaway. He has revealed himself in such ways that is plain to all. It's been plain since the creation of the world, therefore all people are without excuse. Another takeaway, people can know there is a God, and yet their own wickedness act to suppress the truth. People can believe there is a God, but refuse to commit to him. Another takeaway, those who fail to recognize God as creator will fail to glorify him or thank him. Another takeaway, when God is absent from our minds, we neglect truth and absolutes. Another one, the absence of truth and absolutes leads to futile thinking, which leads to futile living. All of which leads to a confused mind, making it difficult, if not impossible, at that point to turn to God because their foolish hearts are darkened. Another one, a darkened heart leads to one to seek answers from those who say with absolute there are no answers. Another one leads one to worship the created. A person or a thing instead of the creator. That's Romans one. And all of this leads to this extremely humbling truth. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. When the darkness of sin takes over, there's no longer a sense of right and wrong. And without the presence of God, the remedy remains unknown. So if God is, if the presence of God isn't known, and a person's living in the darkness, the remedy remains unknown. Without his remedy and righteousness, the end is destruction. What is Paul saying in Romans one? He's saying, stop. Look around. The evidence of God's wrath is allowing sinful nature to run its course. Are you seeing it? For those who refuse God and give into the lure of sin, leading them to the pit of destruction, God says, have it your way. But know that my wrath is reserved for those who reject me. Romans 1 in the NLT, a different translation says, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desire. As a result, They did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. If a person says, I don't want to walk with the Lord, I don't want to be obedient to the Lord, I'm not concerned at all about the Lord. Eventually, the Lord will say, go your way. I told you it was a heavy message. But it is clearly the word of God and what God teaches. Friends, if you you are here and you are rejecting God, man, I hope you heard something this morning that scares you to death. Would you talk to somebody? Would you talk to me or one of our pastors or elders or a friend? Maybe you're just saying, I don't know what all that was about, but man, do I have questions now? Ask him. Scripture's not playing around here. Let me leave you with one thing. People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Remember a minute ago I said you cannot understand mercy unless you understand sin, because they go hand in hand. Father, um, You know, and it's my guess, that there are many believers in this room and you have challenged our hearts. Even believers, though we have been spared, though we have been rescued and redeemed, we have this gravitational pull of the flesh back to a life of sin. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would Do everything in your power. Convict us, guide us, teach us, remind us. Everything, that we can live more and more a life of obedience. But God, there are people in this room that if nothing changes, there will come a day when you say, fine, go your way. And what a sad day that'll be. Some here, Lord, will say, well, it, it can't be this heavy. It can't be this hard. To which it's not. It's really a person being convicted by the Holy Spirit who says, I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and I want to live my life for him. I want him to be my savior and my Lord. God, is there somebody here today that's in that situation? Would you rescue people today? People who wanna know you, people who humble themselves before you and say, that's me, I'm tired of my life, I'm tired of the direction it's going. I'm tired of traveling in a circle, going nowhere. I don't want to live eternity apart from you. God, would you save me today? Would you give me a new hope, a new life, a new purpose? Would you help me to understand mercy and grace and forgiveness today? Thank you for your faithfulness, God, in saving us. In Jesus' name.